This episode you're about to hear on Buddhist Geeks was recorded as a larger two-part conversation with Michael W. Taft on why metadharma. And if you'd like to listen to part two, it's simultaneously airing on Michael's excellent podcast, Deconstructing Yourself. So you can find that at deconstructingyourself.com or in any podcast app. I'd recommend checking it out. It's a great podcast if you haven't listened to it already. And go ahead and download part two where we get more into the practical aspects of metadharma. Here in this first part, we're exploring some of the bigger questions, the theoretical dimension of why metadharma. And in part two, we talk a lot more about the practical projects and ideas that we have and the practices uh, and the social changes that are necessary to bring about a genuine metadharma. I'd also want to mention that Michael and I will be co-leading a day-long retreat on August 24th, 2019 in San Francisco, California. And uh, this is my uh, first time teaching on Metadharma as it is Michael's. Uh, and I believe this is maybe the first Metadharma teaching event ever. So if you're in the area or know people that are, please send them our way. You can find out more about this event at the San Francisco Dharma Collective's website. Just give it a Google. Look for Metadharma and come on and say hello. We'd love to practice with you. So, Michael, um, one of the things we've been talking about with Metadharma um, and as we've been you know, sharing that idea with other people is that uh, both of us have received uh, quite a bit of skepticism about the whole concept. You know, what, <laughs> what is it? Why do we need another Dharma? What is it? Why would we need a Metadharma? Um, so that seems like a big question when we're kind of exploring this whole this whole topic. Yeah, I get a lot of uh, why should I care, exclamation point, question mark, kind of responses. You know, what what do you mean, metadharma? Who needs such a thing? Uh, we, you know, one dharma is good enough for anybody, uh, or just why do I need another complex thing to worry about? So I've been kind of fascinated by this response, like a real incredulity, not so much skepticism yes. as much as like, who cares? <laughs> or why should I bother? So that to me has been really fascinating because to me it's inherently obvious why this is useful and powerful and interesting. And it's not like I'm getting that response from like my aunt at Thanksgiving or something. It's from Dharma teachers and people who are, you know, deeply engaged with this material. So I, I'm like, ooh, interesting. Here's a question I have. I, I realize I, I don't know if I've ever really asked you this is how did you get to this point of being interested in metadharma? Like where did your journey begin with uh, this whole exploration? Yeah. I mean, it, we can throw it way back in time all the way to childhood in a way, but I'll say that probably it really started uh, at sounds true in Boulder, Colorado, like all things. Um, <laughs> That's true. Both you and I. It sounds true, at least. Yeah, exactly. Both you and I are uh, veterans of working at Sounds True. And uh, one of the outcomes or one of the side effects of having produced quite a bit of material there for me was that I got exposed to quite a bit of material a huge mm -hmm. amount of material, like lots of teachers from lots of traditions all claiming that they were kind of the one and only solution. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I was already coming from Robert Anton Wilson, metasystematicity land, you know, reality, check your reality tunnel land. So I had some, um, some of that metasystemic view already, but being immersed in working closely with all these teachers on their dharma, um, you know, uh, you just can't help over time but be, get a bigger view on where does all this fit together, what pieces of this are the most interesting and useful and powerful, and where do different systems seem to be coming from, where do they fit in. And then even more powerfully, we were recording a lot of Ken Wilber, you know, and right. so there's even, you know, a, a, a literal attempts at uh, fourth turning type dharma, fourth turning of the wheel type dharma, and so on. So I think that that uh, uh, sounds true experience, which for me was mainly in the 90s, uh, also combined with quite a bit of natural proclivity in that direction has led um, over the years to gathering more and more um, interest and more and more uh, material about this stuff. And and I don't know about you, but it seems to me like we've reached some kind of inflection point mm-hmm. where uh, in the last several years, but definitely in the last year, there's a new kind of energy and intensity and interest and readiness despite the way we open to this with the, the incredulity or skeptical question, there seems to be a kind of readiness to, uh, I don't know, dare I say, disrupt the, mm-hmm. the Dharma as it is, the you know uh, Western modernity consensus Dharma that is, uh, that is, is sort of dying on the vine everywhere around us. What, what about you? How did you get involved in this? I mean, were you there at Ground Zero with Wilbur, the Wilbur man himself? Yeah, I I, I was there at, at one of the Ground Zeros. I think uh, I came in at maybe the second or third round of the Integral Institute uh, booting up uh, around 2004. And it was an exciting time and an interesting place to be because Wilbur was bringing in lots of spiritual teachers like Father Thomas Keating was coming through and Brother David Stindelrast and uh, Trollog Rinpoche and, there, uh, and and a couple others that I, <laughs> I, I should mention also Mark Gaffney and Andrew Cohen, <laughs> some really problematic figures. Ken seems to surround himself with uh, sex offenders. You know, it's interesting because I, I always found in that community, there's so much excitement, innovation, um, intelligence. And then the flip side of it seemed to be that there was also like a lot of, um, like drugs and partying and sexual, you know, just like misconduct all over the place. And it seemed like those two were, were, somehow linked. I mean, it wasn't like you could have, it felt a little bit like I would imagine hanging out with Trungpa, you know, in the seventies might've been like, like just kind of a wild ride with some brilliance and then just like some crazy shit going on. Yeah. I guess if you're willing to break the rules in one domain, perhaps you're willing to break the rules in many domains. Yeah. And how do you, I mean, how to even differentiate sometimes between what's post-conventional and pre-conventional, you know, use Wilbur's own (laughs) distinction against him uh, and and against, uh, you know, everything we were doing at the time. Yeah, it's really interesting. So there you were. And and how did that affect your current interest in metadharma? 
Well, I think that was my first exposure. And I, I shared with you actually while I was driving out to Boulder from North Carolina, mo- moving there, um, that my wife and I, we, we listened to the whole Cosmic Consciousness uh, series, uh, Sounds True series with Ken. And I, I just thought that was a brilliant, um, that was probably the best presentation of his work that I'd run across because it was so personal and because it was really clear. And I think Tammy did a great job of pulling things out of him and uh, and really making sure he covered all the bases. Yeah. Tammy did a great job in that set of just making him explain what he meant by certain terms uh, in the most brutally simple way that anyone could understand. And uh, I still think it's the best presentation of Wilbur that that there is like you can, if you want to understand Wilbur, listen to cosmic consciousness. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great intro. Um, so, you know, it's like being exposed to his ideas and he was, I think in some ways he was all about metadharma. You know, he didn't use that phrase, but he talked about fourth terminating. He talked about the integral Dharma. He had this integral spiritual center. Um, and so it was kind of in the water there. Although, you know, the way I was relating to it then is different than how I'm relating to it now. So it feels in some ways like coming back full circle um, to kind of retrieve some of some of the brilliance there. Um, You've spiraled back around, but on a higher level, having transcended and included the Wilbur material. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> if I were taking a metasyncretic view of it, then yeah, I'd agree with that, to use Benita Roy's term. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's true, and and you know, and I was just thinking too with your experience as a producer. Um, you know, you you left Sound Street in two thousand. I came on much later. I think it was maybe two thousand six. Um, but but working in the same in the same basic in the in the production uh, department in the studio, and I was just thinking it's interesting that that role, from what I gathered in my short tenure there, it, it's also interesting because as a producer, you can't really buy any of your, any of the people that you're working with, you can't buy their stuff because then you become a crappy producer and you can't question their thing and help them try to improve how they're like, if you've already, if you've already totally drunk the Kool-Aid, how can you actually be a good producer? So I was just thinking your years of experience there at Sounds True, producing all that stuff. It wasn't just that you were hearing it. It was also, you're hearing it with this particular kind of ear right of the the producer ear where you're you're kind of having to not buy all of the things that are being said uh as like a student or as a you know someone that's actually following uh that particular dharmic approach yeah in a in the most positive way you have to be very skeptical and also listen for the holes in the argument and try to anticipate the listeners questions and all that. And, that, and you know, that's just with one program. And then next week, it's another truth of the universe. And next week, it's <laughs> another truth of the universe. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it, it's an inherently metasystemic uh, job. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, interestingly, you know, that's where I ran into Shinzen. At that, at that point in my life, I was, uh, when I first was uh, doing heavy-duty production, it, it sounds true. I mean, I actually got hired to ship boxes. You know, I was in the, oh, really? the shipping department. and then, Oh, wow. But I had done so much of my own do-it-yourself, punk rock, homebrew, four-track, tape recorder, uh, sound production that uh, I, I kind of talked my way into a sound production uh, 
position as making the programs, not the not the technical mm-hmm. uh, engineer part. And uh, so that was quite a jump. And um, but in any case, the uh, one of the first programs that I edited, you know, we used to get in there with Sonic Solutions editing software and just listen to 50 random hours of material and have to edit that down into something that made sense. And the very first thing I did that on was um, Shinzen on the program called uh, Science of Enlightenment, which, Mm -hmm. you know, still his most popular program ever. And Tammy who was going through a horrible breakup at that time, just ensconced herself in the studio with Shinzen. Shinzen had a couple students in there to help him um, stay fresh. And they just, she said, Shinzen, I just want to brain dump on everything you know about meditation and enlightenment. So he talked for literally 50 hours. And in the course of editing that down to more like uh, uh, 12 hours or something, I really, I was like, oh my God, I need to learn a lot more from this guy. So that's how I became a student of Shinzen. Mm. And that that also, didn't that project eventually turn into the Science of Enlightenment book too? Yes. 12 years after the tape set came out. Which is a great book. Thanks. Yeah. That was one of the hardest things I've ever done is getting that book out. But it's out. It exists. And it's about a third the material, uh, on the tape set and two thirds, all new stuff from Shinzen from basically uh, other Dharma talks or just written for the book. Hmm. But in any case, you know, he was, he's already kind of a meta Dharmic. That's what I was going to say. Exactly. Yeah. He's, you know, he was a Shingon monk. So he's got the Vajrayana going there. He's teaching in the Vipassana mode. So he's got the, the Sutrayana or Theravada and, um, Notice I'm avoiding the term Hinayana. And, um, but really he's, you know, a 25, 30 years end student. So the core of what he's doing in a way is like three vehicle Buddhism. Yes. And he's always uh, exhorting us, especially back then. It was like, listen, you know, don't believe any of this, really question all these different viewpoints understand that certain ways of meditating are good for some things and not for others. Yeah, he was really uh, good about that stuff. And I really appreciated it. So I think that that was uh, a big, uh, another big push towards metadharma uh, for me anyway. Yeah, yeah. I remember the first time I had him on Buddhist Geeks, he 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 made some sort of reference to Wilbur and he said, you know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of, what Wilbur is to theory, I'm, I'm kind of like that to practice. Um, and, and that made a lot of sense to me because he, he seemed to be much more on the ground kind of in terms of creating systems and constantly revisioning his systems. And, you know, he was nerdy and theoretical, obviously, you know, but at the same time, you know, Ken wasn't uh, a teacher in, in any conventional sense, you know, of actually working with students and, you know, leading retreats and stuff like that. So um, made a lot of sense to me, what he said. Yeah. And, you know, Shenzhen's always willing to use anything from any system. Uh, you know, he was one of the first people I worked with who had a comprehensive knowledge of other world religions in their source languages and and so on. So it's just a, a much more overview to get, you know, that meaning of the word meta, that kind of overview, uh, viewpoint that's so powerful. Yes. It's uh, occurring to me though, that we have not 
really talked about what metadharma is or could be or what we even mean by this term. So do you feel yeah, like Yeah, well, I, I like that you or, mentioned... Or do you want me to go first? Yeah, totally. Well, it's, it's we're kind of I feel like we're like kind of looping around the question and identifying the, the landmarks you know, and the people <laughs> around it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I like that you brought up um, the whole falling apart of the consensus Buddhist uh, frame, which, you know, that's something that our friend, our mutual friend, David Chapman talks about. And I felt that too, you know, that the, the consensus is over, meaning this, there's a sort of, for a long time, this block of, you know, Buddhists who sort of had this sort of understanding uh, with each other about kind of the way things are. Um, and, and it was, you know, I guess it was formalized in some ways, but it also was just sort of a culture um, around this stuff. And I would include all of my, you know, teachers, Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg. And, you know, I would include them as part of that consensus, you know, maybe the way that they the, taught. Maybe even the core of the consensus. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're important pivotal figures for, for that, for that movement. Um, but then, you know, as they've gotten older and now the internet, I think maybe is the prime driver for this, um, has kind of broken things apart and refactored everything. Yeah, it seems like we're in this new landscape where, you know, it's just like we can't just go to the bookstore or to Barnes and Noble or Borders, you know, the the source of all knowledge <laughs> and you know, get get the book on how things are. It's more like there's podcasts, there's blogs, there's you know, these these unknown characters that are teaching and on online and you know, there's just so many more perspectives that are considered valid uh, or at least people are considering now. Um, that it's, to me, that's part of what's led to the whole metadharma thing somehow is like kind of trying to make sense of all of that, um, and figure out, well, given the just like ridiculous amount of possible techniques, uh, ways of approaching this, uh, potential goals that we have to start to make, like have some way of making sense of it all in order to even approach it, uh, on an individual practice level. Uh, and then the other thing, you know, that in my mind, the other driving factor for this is, um, is the sort of rapidly accelerating ecological crisis that we're facing and the ways that the whole individual path thing just isn't tenable anymore or the whole notion of there being a way of going like from the inside, you transform yourself and then that will spread through every person that you touch into you know, this awakened society. Um, like that just hasn't panned out. It just hasn't worked that way. And we, we've had some massive holes in our awareness as Dharma practitioners and communities around racial issues and around ecological issues. And those all those things are coming back and like, not just biting us on the ass, but they're, they're like literally threatening our existence. Yeah. Eating our whole bodies. Um, it's really amazing how, um, completely, uh, lame and inadequate consensus Buddhism feels, uh, when confronted with the current situation. Yes. Right. It just has this sort of like complacent, self-satisfied, uh, perennial truth, you know, the sun will rise again tomorrow kind of feeling um, that doesn't, you know, the sun might not rise tomorrow. <laughs> right. It's kind of the feeling of the world yeah. we're in. And yep. 
And so it just loses all relevance. And, you know, David Chapman has this phrase about consensus Buddhism that the pith teaching is, you know, it's nice to be nice. And hmm. that that's kind of the mood of the whole thing. And it's like, here we are, the, you know, with the world, the world is on fire and we've got, you know, disaster capitalism economically mm. raping everyone and, and, you know, these systemic structures of racism and oppression and domination. And, you know, uh, uh, just yesterday, uh, Boris became the prime minister of England. So it, it, it feels yep. like, you know, we're in some kind of a runaway uh, hyperbolic catastrophe mode. And yes. so something beautiful about the Dharma and in the largest sense, not just Buddhism, but the Dharma is that it always adapts for whatever situation we're in. And so it seems like it's time for the Dharma to adapt yet again to this new situation and have a, a whole new outlook and set of teachings that are appropriate for whatever this is we're in now. Yes, yes. And, you know, that that's part of how I understand metadharma as well is that, you know, everything starting with modernity in a way, you know, in the West, in the Western Enlightenment is the, sort of the beginning in my mind of, of a fourth turning because it's just such a radical departure and change uh, of kind of thinking and, and the dharma in, 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 inter, being entered and in, introduced into Western kind of culture and Western philosophy really totally transformed Dharma. I mean, that's the whole um, Buddhist modernism uh, exploration. And it seems like to me that's continued. It's, it's, it's gone through waves and maybe even accelerating change um, in that we've, you know, we also have the postmodern, you know, situation where, philosophers and, 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 and critique critiquers, like they started to recognize the, the, the downsides of modernity and the problems with uh, runaway capitalism and the problems with, you know, kind of totalizing narratives, grand narratives that try to explain everything and, and a complete reliance on rationality, you know, and, and, and sort of this like irrational faith and in, in the ability for rationality to explain everything that, you know, th that, that whole thing is kind of busted apart and become fragmented and, 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 but, but that leaves us in a kind of weird position of being potentially nihilistic and not knowing where to go and frozen. And just, you know, I feel like I've experienced quite a bit of that on a personal level, but it also seems like we've been going through that maybe on a Dharmic level as well. Uh, I mean, Anne Glegg's book, American Dharma, probably the best, you know, describes that what's emerging around that whole postmodern Buddhist, um, framework and i i feel like it's exciting and she you know she highlights buddhist geeks and many other things isn't you know, there a whole chapter just about you in that book vince it's about buddhist geeks but yeah <laughs> it was a big part of that for sure um you know so it's like i guess i you know in some ways she, uh i'm one of the faces of postmodern buddhism so you know, to me it's like postmodern buddhism is great but there's something also lacking and missing in, in how i've been understanding things and uh to me, I look toward this whole notion of meta dharma to help kind of reconcile some of that. It's like, okay, the consensus is broken. Um, I can't rely on a lot of the stuff that I learned, and yet I also can't just kind of flounder here, um, or or even just make make it all up myself. Um, if that makes sense. 
It does. It's interesting because, you know, uh, out of the box Madhyamaka philosophy, you know, so second turning philosophy already deals with this issue in one way because they, you know, it's uh, Nagarjuna is always contrasting uh, eternalist narratives versus nihilistic narratives. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, modernist, we could say, is an eternalist narrative. Uh, the sun will rise tomorrow. It's all going to be okay. If we just believe in being nice to each other, we'll get by kind of thing. Yes. And as long as everyone has a job. Um... And is white and, you know, yeah. Um, and then there's the nihilistic narrative of the post-modernity. Post you know, it's all meaningless uh, and uh, useless. And it's all white people's fault. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Is, well, this is the hilarious thing about nihilism and, and postmodernity is most of it's true, right? It's just that it's <laughs> it's just not the final truth. There's, yeah, it's not there's the full truth. truth. That's what I mean. It's not the yeah. full truth. Yeah, yeah, because it's I think part of part of what I've been coming around to appreciate is like, well, there are there are a lot of terrible things <laughs> that have come with modernity, but 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 that does shouldn't keep us from acknowledging and appreciating the good stuff um, that's come with modernity, like doubling our lifespans and you know uh, solving all kinds of uh, challenges that humans had no Me clue medicine, about. Medicine, you know, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, I've got a number of friends that are medical doctors, and I'm quite frankly <laughs> grateful that that profession exists, and right? that you know, yeah, that I'm not having to, you know. Die. <laughs> so <we're young. laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. So we don't want to throw all that out. And at the same time, you know, we've got this pretty accurate critique in yes. in post uh, post modern thinking. Yeah. But again, to the extent that that's just purely nihilistic, um, we we would say that. You know, in in this kind of Nagarjuna philosophy, it's like, well, eternalism goes too far in one direction, nihilism goes too far in the other direction, uh, and it's explicitly hierarchical. They're saying, you know, eternalism is you start out there, and then you, as you get, as you essentially wise up, you go into nihilism. Yes. So it's nihilism is smarter than eternalism, but it's not the final stopping place. There's a thing beyond that, right? Yes. And yeah. that's in my mind what I think of when I say metadharma is this position beyond that where it's neither eternalist, you know, we're all going to end up in heaven with wings and harps and halos, nor is it nihilist, but um, instead it's this uh, metadharmic position where actually some things have meaning and some things are important and uh, some things are worth doing. Yes. Yeah. You know, and, and for me, one of the characteristics I found of, of the postmodern mode is to really question Dharma and the whole notion of Dharma, um, you know, and even the validity of having traditions and teachers and, um, you know, really putting all of that under the microscope and questioning it and being like, you know, is this just a carry, is this a carryover from, you know, kind of patriarchal, hierarchical, you know, add your, add your adjective um, cultures. And we're just perpetuating that. Or is there something useful here 
um, that's relevant and that could actually um, make a difference in some sense. And not just individually, but on, on a social level as well. Yeah, and I, clearly, you know, the fact that we're having this conversation means we think, yes, there is yes. something in there. Yeah. Um, and that that's worth preserving and, um, a lot of stuff that's worth tossing out. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I would say in my mind, a lot of new things that are worth adding in, you know, we've come a long way since, uh, medieval times in terms of our understanding of psychology, in terms of our understanding of, the, you know, science of the world around us and the science of the human brain. Uh, We've learned a lot and these things don't really match up very well with traditional uh, dharma, traditional understanding of how the world is structured both internally and externally. And uh, while I'm not, I'm not voting for a completely science-based dharma, because I think that's also problematic. Me too. Um, bringing in some of this understanding of uh, psychology of intersubjectivity, which isn't, I mean, it's barely there at all in traditional Dharma. Um, yes. Uh, and other people and understandings of, uh, again, s- systemic structures of oppression, understanding, you know, bringing some of this in is crucial. And I think that the Dharma that, um, that will uh, exist or that will be created when we bring all that stuff in is going to look pretty different than Majamaka philosophy or look pretty different than consensus Buddhism or as yes. some people call it, uh, Buddhist modernism or Buddhist Protestantism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I tend to think it's going to look like a lot of different things and I hope it will look like a lot of different things so that, you know, in a way, um, we have the best chance possible at some of these being evolutionarily useful, you know, and I, in my mind, I think, you know, I think of evolution being something that's driven, it's a process, a natural process driven by recombination. Um, it's like nature recombines itself into all these different forms. And some of those forms work out in certain contexts and situations and other forms don't. It's the proliferation of the different forms that actually uh, enables life to continue. If it were just one form, it'd be awfully brittle. And if, you know, suddenly the context changed, you know, that form just dies and then end of life. Uh, but life doesn't seem to work that way. It seems to be like prolific in its kind of recombinatory power. And whereas our consensus Dharma was like more like some sort of brittle, um, you know, one, you know, one thing, the one Dharma that, you know, can't really, I mean, already it can't stand up to some of these changes. Um, so in my mind, yeah, meta dharmas are, are somehow also, um, many, uh, how does that sound to you? Yeah, it's pluralistic. It's not one system. It's many systems. On, on the other hand, uh, I mean, I like that. And on the other hand, I had some very fundamentalist religious Buddhists yelling at me on Twitter the other day that I didn't appreciate the role that, you know, let's say I'm going to, I'm going to somewhat cartoonishly characterize their 
position, but I think just, one of these people actually had a cartoon as their they did, <laughs> as their yeah. bio photos. I think that's fair. They totally did, but you know, it was like you don't appreciate how like village, you know, monks for a thousand years have you know basically spent their entire lives protecting this precious jewel of dharma against kings and invaders, so that you could have it. You know, otherwise it would have been destroyed. And as kind of like extreme and to me somewhat hilarious their position was, I I, I realized they were right on some level. You know, there all of this could have disappeared long ago if there if there wasn't kind of a core of of teaching uh, and a core of people willing to kind of keep that teaching going over the millennia, right? So there can be a um, uh there can be the problem of too much variation and too much prol proliferation so that it becomes so amorphous and non-identifiable as a thing that it actually doesn't survive. Yeah. You know, and, and that, that's something I've, I've come to appreciate a lot more in recent years. And maybe, maybe that for me has been part of the turn toward metadharma has been a deeper respect and appreciation for the conservers uh, and the conservative attitude because like you said, without the conservers, we wouldn't be able to retrieve things from the repository of Dharmic wisdom um, to try to recombine them with other things. Um, it, they'd just been lost. Yeah, somewhere there's somebody guarding the bunker. You know, and it's going <laughs> to tend to be like a conservative type of attitude, right? So um, it's just interesting, but I feel like we're failing a little bit here uh, to to really make it clear why anybody should care about this. You know, like what's what's in it for me if I start to get involved in metadharma? It just sounds. It could just sound like a bunch of theoretical stuff about future history or something. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'd, I'd reframe the question personally to what's in it for us, because I think the what's in it for me already kind of starts from the position of a kind of focus on individualism that, in my mind, metadharma has to transcend uh, and include, to use Wilbur's phrase. Um, because it's, as we said, it's not it's not enough to just focus on one's individual practice if the whole if the house is on fire around you it's like i can sit and be with my breath and i'm breathing and noticing you know everything arising and passing while the house is on fire you know yeah, that's it's the, like that cartoon of the dog at the table with the whole house on fire saying this is okay we just change that to him saying you know breathing in i smile <laughs> As the, as the whole building burns down around him, you know. Breathing out, I, I die. Exactly, yes. Which, you know, to me, one of the beautiful things about the timeless aspect of Dharma is that, you know, it is a preparation and practice for dying well. Uh, and I don't think that changes. Um, yeah, as you know, I, I've started really, I have a group now called Death Sangha where it's all, yes. all, uh, practices about dying. Because I think that really, again, one of the things lost in consensus Buddhism is the edge of Dharma, like the real cutting edge, terrifying, difficult, um, let's get in and work with the shadow material parts of Dharma. It becomes so nerfed in consensus Buddhism that it loses 
its uh, radical potential for real uh, awakening or real connection with others or real change, right? Mm -hmm. So this something that comes way forward for me in the current situation, you know, uh, facing potential extinction uh, is that edge of working with death dharmically. Yes. Yes. And do do you work with the death? Do you work with that uh, both on the personal level and also kind of on the collective level, like imagining death in terms of extinction or, um, you know, collapse or things like that? I think that's both implicit in the room and explicit in the practice. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, you know, there's a reason everyone's in that room and we do it all aloud together, right? It's not, uh, it's not just all alone in your mind. Yeah. So you're doing like interpersonal, uh, practices as well. Uh, so far it's, there is some of that. Yeah. But mainly, um, the idea is that we're talking about it aloud in the same room together. It's, there's a lot of sharing and stuff. So, you know, the, the interpersonal element is there, uh, and with a lot of emphasis, obviously, on confronting death, dying, um, and not just individual death, but death of species, death of communities, death of cultures, death of the world. Yeah. Mm. Mm. That's cool. No nihilism here. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> And it turns out that's super compelling. Not only does that instantly, like just, just I mean, you know, I'll get one tiny practice that we're doing outside of the class is I'm just having people watch at least one autopsy video, right? Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, you know, if you want to break out of consensus Buddhism <laughs> right yeah. away, uh, watch an autopsy video, you know, contemplate death. It's really intense. And it suddenly that sort of like weird, you know, cotton candy fog of just let's all be nice is just blown away. And we have to really confront like some serious issues of what we're doing here, what we're doing here together, what's going on, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, and and I think to be, for me to be fair to the, to the teachers I worked with, I mean, it was, there was a sort of niceness piece, but I think also, I mean, it really was always about death, um, too. I mean, that was there, but you know, the question for me was always, you know, who else is in the room and what are they looking for? Cause I, I saw a lot in the, in the retreats that I was going on for many years, a lot of folks coming in there to kind of work on themselves. Like they were kind of on a self-improvement plan. And then there were, there were some hardcore, there was a small percentage of like hardcore practitioners, you know, you, you start to see them at, you know, on regularly on retreats and, you know, you watch them practice and they never stop. And, you know, it's like, you get, get to know these people if you're one of them. And, you know, those folks, I think, you know, when I talked to them, they were, they were doing something different yes. uh, and, and the teachers were supporting that and actually loved that. Um, so it's almost like, I wonder if part of the consensus was also around just trying to make a viable business. Well, yeah. I mean, you talk to someone like, well, any one of those teachers in person and they've certainly got a much deeper, richer, sharper practice than what they're teaching. Right. They've, they've been through some really interesting stuff and, um, and are, 
ready to, you know, back uh, support that in students. But again, either because of the business model or just because of, I don't know, trying to not upset too many students or something. It's, I, I think there's a, a whole host of reasons that it kind of took on this form. Yeah. And it se- it, again, it just seemed to become so nerfed that it became irrelevant. Yeah, and it, you know, and, and one one thing I noticed is it, it also uh, the form froze in 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 the cases of the communities that I was with. I, I know Shenzhen is almost the opposite of that, like because the form is always Shenzhen's forms are always changing, and in the, in the communities oh, that yeah, I went to, eight point one or eight point two in this retreat. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but in the retreats that I was going on, I mean, the the retreat, the format itself was locked in. You know, it had been the same for thirty years. And it was the silent retreat form, walking, sitting, alternating between those two, going for a 15-minute teacher interview, the Dharma talk in the evening. Like there was nothing, there was no innovation happening in terms of the structure or format of the practice. And in that sense, it felt like, you know, over 10 years of practicing there, I didn't really see anything change. And and that to me, uh, you know, is one characteristic of metadharma for me would be, it's it's, it's, it's the opposite of that. It's, it's, it's very fluid, uh, and flexible and there's maybe uh, room expectation of change rather than expectation of finding a stable, perfect form and then sticking with it and just replicating. Yeah. I think one of the most interesting questions for me as I've been kind of more consciously exploring metadharma recently is, um, you know, if we're going to really do all these different sorts of practices and we're going to have time to do stuff on our own and we're going to have time to do stuff with others and it's going to include not only silent meditation, but it's going to include shadow work and it's going to include, let's say, psychology stuff and theory stuff and so on. It starts to sound like a very, very, very tiny number of people actually have the time, the money, the privilege to do that, you know? Uh, and and so I've been wondering, even though metadharma, the way I, the, I think the way both of us imagine it is radically inclusive and is really understanding about racism and oppression and, and structures of domination and so on. I, I just wonder how it's going to really play out, how what parts of it will really become important um, and useful and interactive in uh, uh, communities of color or uh, or you know poor people. I, I live here in Oakland where there's just a giant sea of street people. I mean, it's hundreds and hundreds, even just within a, a, a square mile of my house. And, and I'm like, how does metadharma help these people at all? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and hopefully some of the, um, some of the engaged Buddhist principles are going to get massively more important in this metadharma phase. Yeah. Well, you know, I, part, part of how I, think about what you're saying, you know, I, I go back to, to one of the the models that Wilbur had, one of my favorites, you know, he had this whole notion of the four quadrants, uh, which I know you know well. And the basic idea is, you know, it's, it's a way of looking at, at reality from these sort of four perspectives that in some sense are 
a kind of splicing up of of the interior and exteriors of the individual and collective experience. And you know, you've got these four quadrants in the top are the is the individual and the bottom is the collective. On the left hand side is the interior, the right hand side is the exteriors. And if for Wilbur, the interior and exterior, the mind-body problem wasn't really a problem. They're just two sides of the same arising. And the individual and collective also are two sides of the same arising. Individuals just don't arise by themselves. They arise in collectives. Uh, and collectives are uh, made up of individuals. So for him, these things are all have to come to – these perspectives all co-arise or in his frame, they tetra-arise. They all rise together. And you know when I look at it, that did you that, just say tetra arise? Yes, they tetra arise. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, and so te- you know, tetrize, as I like to say. Yeah, they tetrize. <laughs> um, and so you know, that's a nerdy way of saying that you know, if one just changes your their interior experience, which I think Buddhism has classically been about that, about a transformation of the of the experience of the of the of the of the practitioner. Um, and that's what I think what maybe what is excels at in some ways, but, but that said, I mean, even looking back to the time of the Buddha, uh, and this is where I'm I'm not a Buddhist traditionalist, but I think it's very interesting that the, the Buddhist community, the Sangha also was a huge cultural, it was, it was an entirely new kind of culture, um, uh, it participated in a sort of breaking from the caste system. So it, they cre- they created their in t- a totally different category within the society that didn't make any sense in terms of the society. Um, they broke outside of the social norms. They had their own culture. They had their own uh, kind of minimalist, simplistic economics. You know where they were, relied on on you know uh, on, on the gifts of others and really just tried to not need a lot. Um, the sim- sort of simplistic, voluntary simplicity. Uh, and, 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 you know, to me, I think part of what made Buddhism so interesting is that it was a break in, in all of these different domains from society. And that's kind of what I feel like the spirit of metadharma ought to be. It's like a break from the way that our society and our, and our cultures and our socioeconomics and our way of living is organized. I see, I see the metadharma project on that level of like, we've got to create, you know, like, Alexander Bard and Jan Soderquist talk about in their book, Synthiasm, we've got to create temporary utopias and subtract ourselves out of the current systems that we exist within, that the only way to actually move forward is to, is to, is to find a way to subtract ourselves out. And I see the- Temporary autonomous zone. Yeah, exactly. Where we can imagine different ways of living uh, and kind of, you know, um, and, and I think the Buddhist- I do think the Buddhist model offers something like that, uh, or at least the history of it offers the, uh, some inspiration for that. Not that we ha- well, not that we can, re- you know, just go back and replicate that because obviously we've already said that's not going to work. <laughs> but what? But what could we learn from it? That's kind of what I've been asking, and I, I think it's it's a hard question because the answer the answers I've been coming to are not easy. They're like, well, actually, probably means you've got a. Uh, like it's a total radical life shift and not just like on an individual level, but you got to get other people on board with some different way of living, you know? <laughs> and so that's what I've been thinking about mostly. Yeah. And at that point, uh, the question is, 
another question is, is it even Buddhism at all, right? We're calling it metadharma, not metabuddhism. Mm -hmm. And it's like, uh, certainly in the United States, for anything to be uh, widely accepted or widely practiced, it's not going to have the name Buddha on it. Right. That's just mm -hmm. not going to happen if you haven't. I mean, I know you're there in the wilds of North Carolina, so you probably see that, too. But of course, when I, you know, visit a home there in Michigan, it's, you know, they're not going to be on board with uh, with Buddhism. Yeah. And, even, you know, even if they're on board with metadharma. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I'm, not, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure this is where mindfulness obviously comes in because mindfulness yes. has responded to that in a way. But it's also in a way the way I've been, you're talking about the consensus, it seems like a continuation of the consensus also. It is. And, and that's, it's an interesting question to me about the, the mindfulness. That's a, it's a whole other topic, but I think there's both, uh, reasons to really despise McMindfulness and other reasons to see it as like, you know, a really interesting way to start introducing people to at least a few of these principles in a palatable way. Yes. You know, when they, when they would be absolutely opposed to the full package all at once, cause it's just so different from their current thinking. Yeah. I don't, I don't know about you, but, uh, and this is maybe a little side note, but uh, I've been surprised in the last, not too surprised, but it, it's, it's been so consistent. The people that are, finding me and doing, you know, doing work with me on a practice level, like coming and doing trainings or retreats or whatever. Uh, when I asked them the question, you know, what got you into this mess? Almost all, I would say like 75 to 90% of people now that are youngerish, you know, under 40 and have get, gotten into this stuff have come through the mindfulness door, uh, through right. headspace or through some sort of app or mindfulness based stress reduction course or something like that. That's what I'm I'm pointing to exactly is that um, as stripped down as it is and as um, as decoupled from the entire yes. you know framework of Buddhism as it is and maybe the ethical framework and all the all the ways that we can criticize it just to use horrible marketing language uh, for a moment um, it acts as a amazingly good funnel you know, for bringing people into deeper and deeper practices. And uh, I, I really appreciate that aspect of it. I mean, that's why I uh, wrote the, the Mindful Geek book is just to try to show people who normally would be completely just against anything Buddhist as being woolly-headed and new age and woo-woo and uninteresting that actually, hey, there's some pretty cool stuff here. And, um, and, you know, a lot of people find that kind of thing interesting and all of a sudden they're looking more, you know, more deeply into it. So there's something there. And as you say, it's a, it's a side conversation really, but, uh, I think that it's introduced huge swaths of America who would never, ever have tolerated meditation for a minute, uh, to the principles of meditation. And I think that's really both good for the world and cool also. Yeah. Well, and you know, going back to your question of like, you know, Joe six pack, <laughs> <laughs> my best friend, <laughs> mine in high school for sure. <laughs> um, 
you know, I've been, my view on this has been changing quite a bit in the last couple of years, again, corresponding with a, a growing interest in metadharma. And I don't, I don't actually see my job or role in being able to try to, to make dharma accessible. Um, I actually think it is more to go out in a kind of more radical direction to create different kind of communities where we can build up these sort of temporary utopias and to let people come find that who are drawn in that direction and let, and, and, and to share the learning broadly and, and in an open source way so that it can be replicated. I, I love that vision. I think that that's the difference historically from, you know, the, the 2000s all the way to, let's say, maybe something around 2012. Um, and now, which is, it's not so much anymore about, uh, in my mind, I'm not that interested at all in making things accessible. It's time to go, you know, do this very radical, deep, powerful stuff that hopefully is a adequate response. <laughs> I'll say hopefully yeah, an adequate response to the situation we're in. Yeah. All together. Here we are all together in this situation. What are we going to do? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I found this quote, uh, I was talking about the principle of necessary subtraction. Uh, I just wanted to read this because it captures it better than I said. According to the principle of necessary subtraction, the only right and reasonable thing for the radically convinced person on many historical occasions is to simply withdraw from the system, to refuse to participate in the social game, to quite simply leave the system in order to build up parallel temporary utopias whose objectives are with time are made permanent and to do this together with dedicated synthiest brothers and sisters. That's from Alexander Barden, Jan Sutterquist's book, Synthiism. Interesting. God in the, God in the eight, God in the internet age, I think is the subtitle. <laughs> I just keep uh, hearkening back to Peter Lamborn Wilson's temporary autonomous zone. What is that? Um, what is that? It's, um, a, uh, it's an extremely radical poetics, the radical poetics of um, what you're calling temp- temporary utopias, mm. but, but written by Hakim Bey in like the 80s. Very problematic in, in every possible way uh, and probably intentionally so. But it has a similar uh, uh, view. Mm. You know, we've just got to make these... Um, habitable areas that are just doing something incredibly different than what's going on outside. Yes. And you know, to me, one of the main parts of that is walking away from capitalism and finding alternative economic modes. Like I think that's a huge, every time I look at the problems of modernity, I, I every time I look at them and I trace back, like, where do these come from? I, you know, it seems to come back to that, like ecological crisis, what's going on here? Well, the capitalist world system is a dominant system and it's built in a way to, you know, to build, to, to create um, profit. And, and it doesn't really matter, you know, where that comes from. You know, it's like, we're going to take all the resources we have and we're going to sink all the waste into all the sinks that we have. And when we run out, well, we'll go into space. Yeah. The waste sink part is crucial. Like the idea that we can export the harm of our, uh, you know, exploitation outside of our little zone. And, uh, you know, like, let's say we're exploiting a colony, uh, we're getting the benefit over here and we're exporting all the harm to the colony. 
right? And this is the, yes. like the core of capitalism is this idea that we never have to deal with the harm. Like it's very rare that the corporation has to clean up their spill or clean up the air or, you know, fix the community that they destroyed around the factory or whatever. Mm-hmm. And now there's no more over there to export the harm to. That's right. The, yeah. We mean, space is the final frontier. It's all here now. And, uh, um, I agree that we have to find either a way to radically transform capitalism itself, probably you know, too. post, post, post capitalism, whatever that's called Yeah, something, uh, you know, if you get into the whole David Schmachtenberger world where we're talking about, yeah. you know, ways to have, uh, profit making that are meta, uh, um, harmless, you know, yes. where we're not exporting the harm anywhere. And I think that's a very interesting discussion and, and fruitful and powerful and interesting, but mainly necessary, right? I agree. The um, The modernist project is based in three things, right? It's uh, capitalism, uh, rationality, and Protestantism. Mm. And the rationality, you know, ha- uh, is also a thing that can't be the core of this. Not that the core must be irrational, but it has to include Yes. Irrationality or include the poetics or include emotion or include the soul as an equal partner. Yes. Because you see part of what um, weaponizes capitalism is the rationalist idea that nature is just there to exploit, right? It has, it, it doesn't matter. Yes. Yes. And, and you know, so uh, undoing that veil of rationalism is super important. Yes. Um, and that's where we get in, you know, meta rationality becomes really interesting. Um, and the poetics of this, of, uh, groups and the, and quote the soul and all that very, very important, uh, to bring in as well. So I see what you're saying, leaving the capitalism behind. And to me, it would be also leaving the, the monopolar total dependence on rationality behind. Yes. Yes. You know, when we've, you know, in America, at least, or in the West, when we, you know, uh, when it went full rational, the the counterbalance to that or the sort of, uh, let's say, hidden, the shadow that came of that is the new age where it's like not only irrational, but just stupid, right? Unworkable and stupid. And that's what happens when you put all your eggs in the rationalist basket and completely deny all, all of these other sorts of impulses, yeah. the spiritual impulse, the poetical impulse, the emotional impulse. Yeah. And so we've got to bring those out of the shadows so that they can come back to their full flowering as really deep, powerful, beautiful aspects of, of uh, human and animal kind. Yeah. I like, I like how you put that. And it, it seems like we're, whether we like it or not, I mean, we're already there in the in the sort of post fact world that we're currently living into. <laughs> Again, though, it's all in the shadows, so it's become it's like a really uh, sick version of irrationality. Building something that works, or allowing and cultivating and celebrating something that works in that domain is going to be really interesting. Yeah, I agree and I and, and this is where I do I do feel like the Buddhist dharma has something useful to to kind of offer or to be retrieved, you know, because there are so many great and beautiful transrational teachings and and pointers and 
you know, the finger pointing to the moon um, of Zen um, and, and all these beautiful rational systems that lead to the dissolution of, of dependence on the rational mind to, to be able to understand what's happening. Yeah, or terrifying and sublime transrational systems like, uh, you know, Tantra. Yes. So um, it's really been there in the past. And I think it's, it's again, not only the problem here is not only capitalism, but like total dependence on rationality. Yes. And so hopefully metadharma can uh, work with both of those. Yes. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.